Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome back, everyone, to Mav Sports Take, Episode 3, with myself, Ryan Roberts, and Mr. David Turner. Ryan Roberts here, Director of Scouting at NFL Draft Bible, NFL Draft Writer for Fantasy uh, Draft Room, host of Baldi's Breakdowns every third week, Wednesday night, 9 Eastern Time, and Friday night Scout School, with my good friend here, Mr. David Turner. David, uh, been a lot of places former professional scout with the Miami Dolphins, Oakland Raiders, Carolina Panthers, New York Giants, San Francisco 49ers, three straight Arena League titles with the Arizona Rattlers as the Director of Player Personnel and Assistant General Manager. Brief stop with the Edmonton Eskimos a lot uh, as well. So he has had a plethora of scouting experience, now Owner-President of Maverick Sports Consulting, as well as Director of Player Personnel with the ANC Combines and my partner in crime, Every Friday night on Friday Night Scout School, we want to thank everybody for listening now to this third episode together. One and two are awesome. We've gotten some great feedback. This is some, and I really appreciate that everyone enjoys our unmuzzled takes on sport. No sugarcoating here. David, we have an incredible show tonight. we got Mr. Tom Pelissero coming on in a couple minutes. We're talking some NBA playoffs, branching out a little bit tonight, and uh you know, just taking some questions like every week, man. We got some mailbag ready to go. How are you, my friend? I'm doing excellent. I can't wait for the program tonight and the topics. So much has been happening when it's come to, you know, college football uh, and NFL football. And to have an expert like uh, Tom Pelissero on to, to be able to go through all this stuff and get this going and get his take on it all. I mean, it's just an exciting night, and I thank you for that intro. <laughs> Every time you talk about it, it makes me feel like more important than I than I do on a day to day basis. But yeah, it is true. I've been with a lot of teams, some great owners, from Al Davis to Wellington Mara to working for GMs under Marty Herney and Dave Dave Gettleman. So when we ask for you know the business of football questions, let's do it. You know, I've been able to be an assistant general manager, a director of player personnel. I've been the decision maker on a lot of moves and a lot of, you know, team building and roster building things. So if there's ever a question that people just couldn't get answered somewhere else, I look forward to answering them here for our audience and in this forum and obviously on Friday Night Scout School to be able to, you know, teach them uh, how to scout, how to move ahead and move forward with either their career as an agent, a coach, a player that's curious whatever the case may be. So, yeah, just it's very exciting tonight. It's just I'm pumped for for what's coming with uh Tom and everybody. So, let's uh let's let's get it on. I love it, man. I love it. And David, even if you don't want to admit how important you are, you are always important to me, my friend. Develop this great relationship. We had to do this every week, right? Friday nights weren't enough. We had to bring you guys live here 9 Eastern, well, actually, sorry, What's it? 8.56 Eastern time to be exact tonight. Taking some live questions. Going live here on my Twitter feed at Rise and Draft. You can also follow David at Mav underscore sports as well. So without further ado, we want to bring on a man who, you know, doesn't really need too much of an introduction, right? Uh, fortunate to have NFL Network's own Tom Pelosero coming on. 
He has covered NFL since 2003. Uh, we have, you know, before that, he had stints with the Minnesota Vikings and Green Bay Packers, uh, a part of the beats there. Uh, before joining NFL Media in 2017, he spent four years covering NFL nationally for USA Today. Tom also can be heard on Sirius XM Radio and 1500 ESPN and Twin Cities, a Boston College graduate, and now he lives in the Minnesota uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota area, uh, waiting for Tom to get on. It looks like he's joining right now. I, I know David was really excited for this one. So, uh, David, a little introduction. I know, I know you have a, a, a little personal note with Tom Pellicero, so tell me about how that relationship had developed for you. Yeah, Tom and I met years ago down at the Senior Bowl, and, um, you know, uh, my agent, actually, Barty Garamani, introduced us um, for my SA uh, Sports Management. And we, we just hit it off. And over the years, as we've moved forward together in our careers, it's just been great to see how he's progressed and the integrity that he continually carries with him every, every second, uh, every, every post and everything. I mean, he's a man that does his research. And, you know, I mean, come on, does it get any better looking than that mug right there? I mean, look at him. He's just like Mr. Perfect all the time. So it's great to have him on. He's a friend. He's a he's obviously a person that I, I, I like a, a lot. But understand, this is an expert that we get access to here to, to really ask his opinion on some really hardcore questions tonight, which I'm excited to hear him respond to. Absolutely. Now that we have Tom here, Tom, welcoming you to the show from Mavs Sports Take, the third episode, second guest on. It's, it's a pleasure to be able to talk to you for a few minutes, my friend. I appreciate you hopping on here with us. Thanks for having us, and I'm sorry that it might have looked like I was half asleep uh, for the first couple minutes there. It's one of the many things with Zoom. Somebody's got to let you in before you can unmute and then do all these things. You think after six months of this, I'd be used to it, but no. Uh, I I hear you, Tom. It was like 15 minutes before the before the uh, podcast started. And I was having some technical issues, so I was about to lose my mind. So I'm right there with you, to say the least. Um, it happens. It happens to all of us. Unfortunately, it happens a little too often nowadays, especially with us needing needing this uh, technology so much. And I really wanted to to uh, start you off here because there has been, you know, there's no matter how much football we're playing, there's always constant movement. Wanted to start you off with the Earl Thomas situation. Um, you know, now a big big emphasis now on team culture this offseason, how it's factoring into some decisions. Obviously, there was. Uh, a altercation with him, um, you know, with, with fellow safety, um, Chuck Clark over there at, in the Baltimore Ravens. Now he's looking for a new home. Uh, just your brief thoughts about the situation and how much this, this, um, this need for team culture and to continue to build that through an uncertain offseason has really led us to this point now with Earl Thomas. It's one of those situations where I think that you go back and kind of follow the breadcrumbs after the fact. Because you have, you know, fights happen in training camp. You know, those things are going to occur on the field. But, you know, on Friday when you started just to see the descriptions of what had happened, you knew that there was tension there. Uh, You know, it turns out that the Ravens have, you know, Earl Thomas punching Chuck Clark on tape. Uh, You know, it's it's Clark that leaves practice, but then it's Thomas who ends up getting sent home from the facility, uh, which I, you know, woke up to that text uh, on Saturday morning or whatever it was, I believe. And, you know, it's then you start thinking back to Brandon Williams and the confrontation that Earl Thomas had with him last year when he was inactive for a game. Ravens give over 200 yards rushing. Thomas confronts him in the training room after the game. 
Uh, then you begin to hear all the other stories about being late for meetings. Uh, what happened at the bye week last year where they beat Seattle, Earl's old team. He gets the game ball. Instead of going back with the team and coming to the Monday meeting, heading into the bye week, he goes straight on vacation, ends up in the Bahamas. Uh, you know, there were other issues along the way. Mike Silver, my colleague, reported that he was late to a team meeting because he needed to get his car washed. I mean, these are not like – and none of these in isolation are a big deal. When you are as big on building culture as the Ravens are, uh, when you think of everything John Harbaugh's done there since 2008, uh, the type of uh, group they've tried to have in the locker room, and then when you realize that it was the players as much as anyone who had had enough of Earl Thomas, uh, that's when it starts to, to add up a little bit more here. So the Ravens you know, tried to preserve their options in terms of getting out from under his salary and whatnot by releasing him the way that they did, mentioning personal conduct which is one of those boxes you can check on the, uh, the termination form. And, you know, we'll see where he lands. As we record right now, Earl Thomas is not on a new team yet. Uh, and, you know, frankly, there's a lot of veteran players who, especially in this environment, might have thought as we got past the pandemic in March and April and they weren't seeing the money that they were hoping to get, they were hoping, okay, you get toward June, July, August. We're going to have physicals again. We're going to be able to do this. Instead, we remain in you know, a rather uncertain environment, even one in which the NFL, to this point, their testing and their positivity rates have been very low for COVID-19. That money is not just appearing out of thin air for Earl Thomas. That's not to say that he's not going to get some money here, but it's not going to be in all likelihood to the level that Earl Thomas is used to in the past. So he, like everybody else, at some point is going to have to make that decision. Is it worth playing for what I can make right now? Uh, or do I take less to go to a good team, or do I even sit out given everything surrounding this season? And there's, you know, certainly some other guys who are going to be making those same decisions in the coming weeks. You know, it's interesting you say you talk about that a little bit with the finances because I was thinking that one aspect of this this year was going to be some of the clubs trying to save some money in an anticipation that next year the salary cap might be in the first time ever lower than before. So if they had a a young rookie or a young player that they could save some money by keeping this year and letting a veteran go and this year's cuts, giving that guy a year of growth to then, you know, explore and have him next year ready to go in better, in better situation. That might be a move. But in this situation, even though they had the personal conduct clause and that's the one they're trying to really like hit, right? The way that it's worded though, in his contract, they still might be on the, the hook for this guy for maybe 10 to $30 million, depending on how the arbitration goes. Cause you know, this is going to go to arbitration. So, I mean, he, they right. Have- he already, right. He made 22 million last season between the signing bonus and, and base salary, David. And then he had a $10 million guaranteed base salary this year. It seems as if what they're trying to do is, as you know, in NFL contracts, when we say fully guaranteed, that means skill injury cap. If you are cut for any reason, if you're hurt, if it's because of declining skill or they had to make a salary cap-related move, you are preserved with that. The Ravens seem to be saying, well, yeah, it was guaranteed for that. It wasn't guaranteed for punching Chuck Clark in the head and for doing other things that we may have documented and we may have, you know, we didn't even mention another off-field incident involving his wife and a gun and other things that went on, even though he was not, in that case, you know, in any way the aggressor. But another situation where you would look at that and say, there are some questions raised by personal conduct, how that reflects, uh, you know, as they put it, adversely upon the Baltimore Ravens. So, I mean, it would be a fascinating grievance hearing, and, and inevitably that's what's going to happen. I also think you bring up a great point about the finances here because when the NFL and the NFLPA were talking this summer, and finances were kind of a, a unique issue because 
you know, to hear the union side tell it, it was, well, we don't need to deal with this now. You know, like we could just right. we deal with this in September, October, November, when we get a better idea what the cap might be for 2021, what the revenue impact is going to be. The NFL was like, no, we want this before guys report to camp. In the end, the, the real hard deadline was when the veterans were going to be on the field. That's when they wanted to have uh, everything buttoned up by. They ended up doing that deal. But one of the things that the league had certainly raised, and the union was, was conscientious of this too, was if you have a giant drop in cap in 2021, guys are going to get cut this year. Teams are going to save the money this year. And the way that works to give a very short version uh, for people who don't necessarily understand how the salary cap is set based on a revenue projection. So the 2020 salary cap is based upon what at the end of this past February, which is interesting timing, that of this past February, they were projecting was going to be the revenue for the 2020 league year. And the players get 48%, 47, 48%, 48.5%, depending on the year of that money. Well, the problem is, and this has never happened before, is what happens if there is a revenue shortfall? Well, that means then that basically money has gone to the players that actually belongs to the owners, 47, 48 cents on every dollar. So if you had what was being projected as a $4 billion revenue shortfall, well, about $2 billion of that falls on the players. That money is going into the cap when it shouldn't be. If they didn't strike a deal, if they didn't come to an accord of how they were going to account for that, then the entire thing would have hit the cap. Next March, you would have had salary cap drop by like $60 million per club, and then it would have just been everybody's out. The union wanted to spread that pain, not have all the players take it at once, and so they cut the deal by which it spread out over four years. They wanted it to be over 10 years, the rest of the CBA. They agreed on three or four years, depending how you, you look at this, for them to kind of smooth that out. And a minimum cap of $175 million per club in 2021, which is down from 198.2 this year. Now, I've talked to people in the NFL who think, the cap is actually going to be closer to 198 than it's going to be to 175. But the point still stands because we live in the current environment where, unlike when David, you know, 50 years ago got into the NFL, you don't have to, you know, make up a bunch of phony incentives. You don't have to sign your backup quarterback to a revised contract on December 18th that says if he blocks 10 field goals, then he gets a $10 million bonus. That's what you had to used to do. And then you go, okay, he didn't hit that incentive. So now we get to carry it over. Now, cap space is eternal. You just, anything you don't use this year, you get to carry over into future years. So could a team justify, we're going to make cuts now, save that extra salary cap space, and then give our cap more room in 2021? And there could be teams that do that. But what I have thought, and this is the longest answer ever to what was a very short question, I know this, but what, what I've thought is interesting is in talking to people in the NFL, the word is there's not even a ton of trade talk right now and that's in part because they've had so few padded practices. A lot of teams have only had five padded practices. So all those swing tackles and fourth linebackers and third corners that normally get dealt, no one knows what they have in their rookies right now, so they're not ready to say, all right, I got a position of depth here that I can deal from. You don't have preseason injuries like you normally would, but people aren't as comfortable with their players right now. Then you throw on top of that the unique roster rules of this season including uh, unlimited return from IR after three weeks rather than just a, a few spots after eight weeks. You're going to be able to churn a lot more through there, expanded practice squads to 16. And when the thing we maybe haven't talked about enough, you can have more veterans on the practice squad. There is no limit. You can have a 10-year veteran on your practice squad. So how does that dynamic now work out? There's a lot of guys who are going to have to swallow deep on their pride yeah. 
because now you're making a fraction of what you were before. But the alternative is going on to the workout circuit where I don't even know how the hell that's going to work because right now you have to take multiple COVID tests before you can even work out. Team has an injury on a Sunday, get guys on a plane on a Monday, they COVID test Tuesday, Wednesday. Now it's Thursday before you can even work them out. They're not ready to play that following week's game. So being on the practice squad and one of those last few spots is like the new workout circuit where at least you have a job, at least you're learning somebody's offense or defense and you're available. And then if you have a rash of COVID-19 infections, whatever it might be, then you would have players available to you who know your scheme, who you can pull up. There are so many unique things to this entire setup this season that, you know, the good news is right now we don't have to think about it because the testing numbers are pretty good, but everybody acknowledges, you know, at some point there's going to be some unique situation that comes up and everybody's kind of trying to war game this and figure out, okay, how would we handle this? Well, they bring up a great point right there, Tom, but let's think about the, the worst case scenario really quick. Over the weekend, there were 77 positives that the NFL got told. Certain practices, 77, right. They're right, yeah. yes. But I'm saying, like, they Unconfirmed got Unconfirmed positives, yes. But they were told, and practice. we saw practices canceled and stuff because of COVID. Yeah. And we also see in the college ranks, Lincoln Riley came out, and they have, like, 17 players on the University of you know, Oklahoma, and he said one of his position groups is eradicated because of COVID-19 to the point where he only has one player that's healthy at that position right now. So when you're talking about these numbers and things, how would it affect the NFL on a Saturday night when they, they're all checked in the hotel, they're all taking that final you know, COVID test, and then you get in the morning, you wake up to seven players on your team or in this league, 77 cases maybe hit positive, what do they do to play Sunday? Well, uh, first of all, the timeline and the testing cadence has not yet been established between the NFL and the NFLPA. They're still doing daily testing through September 5th. After that, they have to now agree on when are we going to test during the season. So again, let me frame this as there is nothing final, but my understanding has been one of the options on the table, and this has been the expectation I've talked to with people in the NFL, is that that pregame test, if it's a PCR test, which is the kind that takes 24 hours to be turned around, uh, that would probably take place on Friday before a Sunday game. So about 48 hours before kickoff. So, or Saturday for a Monday game, which is the better example for what you're talking about. So last weekend, on Sunday morning, and Matt Nagy, I know, said he got the call at like 3 a.m., which who answers that call at 3 a.m.? Um, that they had had this rash. This rash I was going to say, he gets paid a lot of money to answer that call at 3 a.m. Uh, it's a good point, but, I mean, at some point, the ringer's got to be off, right, even for an NFL head coach. Just you get, you get it in the morning. So, he, so you get these calls, right, at 3 a.m. or whatever on Sunday morning, uh, and those were from the tests that were taken on Saturday morning. So let's now – Game this out to a game week, right? Saturday you test. You find out early Sunday morning that you had, let's say, 10 positive tests on your team. So you would do, based upon the, upon the current protocol, you would immediately do three things. You would take a point-of-care test, which is a machine that can actually process it right where you take it. You take it, you get the results back within minutes. You would then also take an extra PCR test, which takes 24 hours, and then they would retest the original test. So by Monday morning, overnight from Sunday to Monday, and even by Sunday night, we knew most of them, all the point-of-care tests were back, 
all negative for the 77 guys across the league. Uh, the retests were being done. All the new PCR tests were done. By Monday morning when you woke up, you had an answer. They were all negative. All those guys immediately then were cleared to be back in the building, and a lot of them were on the practice field on Monday. So that's what it would be. You would wake up the morning of the game and maybe not have those final answers, but that would provide enough time to weed out the false positives. Now, the other scenario is, what if they're not false positives? What if these are real confirmed positives? Because you might, all right, you got 10 positive tests. You go, ah, it's probably another lab contamination. Then the point of care tests come back and they're all positive. Now you've got a lot of complicated things. There's a, a several different things that come into play. At a league level, uh, the commissioner has established, I call it the shadow competition committee. It's an advisory panel of former head coaches, former GMs, former players that are going to set out, sort out some of these competitive issues and advise the commissioner on what to do in terms of game cancellations, venue changes, postponements, though postponements aren't really realistic uh, in right. the NFL just because you only got a 16 game. have a double header. Yeah, where, how are you going to make that work? I, hypothetically, you could whack an entire week of games, put that at the end of the year, but like one game here, one game there, you're probably not uh, making that up. When you get to the end of the season, that same advisory panel will be saying, okay, Team X only played 14 games, and they only played five division games. Did they win the division by a half game over the team that played a full schedule? Nobody knows. The answer is no one knows, and they still have to sort out all these things. They've only had, I believe, one meeting so far, so there's a lot of questions for them. On a team level, you are, again, you have got an expanded practice squad of 16, and I've talked about this with teams. You're bringing your entire practice squad to the road game, which you don't necessarily always do. Uh, a lot of teams you will really do that in a normal time. Normal time, you might practice squad a couple guys come in case right. of your quarterback, an extra right. quarterback, or if you've got injuries, you probably bring those guys, but you leave the other right. Side. But you if don't probably, bring the whole sixteen. No, you're probably bringing everybody, which expands the size of your travel party too, which is another you know thing that's not ideal, but it's realistic. I mean, I had one one team tell me we we're going to have the contracts for all the practice squads with us pre printed. So if something comes up, we're not redoing paperwork. We're going to have all ready to go. And if we need to sign guys, because now they adjusted the rules too. Normally it is 4 p.m. on Saturdays, Eastern time, that you have to activate a guy from the practice squad to be up on game day. Well, now you can do it till 90 minutes before kickoff. You can pull guys up from the practice squad very last minute because if somebody all of a sudden wakes up on the morning of the game and they got a cough and a hundred fever, they're not going to be allowed to play. Those those uh, scenarios, who makes the decision on that? When the, when the quarterback has a sore throat but says, I'm good, who's saying whether or not he can play? We don't know that yet. These are all the protocols regarding the in-season testing cadence uh, and in-season testing protocols that we still need to get answers on. The short version of that answer is if you're sick, it doesn't matter if it's week one or training camp practice for the Super Bowl, you're not going on the field, which is not going to go well. Uh, with a lot of players. Philip Rivers brought it up on one of the early player, the NFLPA calls that they set up. Like, what if that's the AFC Championship game? What if that's the Super Bowl? I, I, I got no say in it. The answer is no. It's, it's kind of like, I mean, the, big, the closest corollary would be the concussion protocol where, okay, you say you're good and you want to play, you want to assume all the risk on yourself. Well, sorry, we're making the decision yeah. for you. But on top of that, in this case with COVID-19, you'd also be running the risk of exposing other people. Well, and I, I called it one uh, one of our early podcasts. I was talking about what if Drew Brees walked in and the morning of the game is starting center and is starting left tackle test positive for COVID. And now he's got to line up with two backups at these positions and they're playing the Bears and here comes Cleo Mack all day. 
Like, what are we going to do? Because, I mean, he's made enough money and he's got that Monday night football contract sitting there for when he retires. You know, what does he do? Because he doesn't want to go out there and end this season like Alex Smith. So, you know, if I just think it's going to be, like you said, really hard if we do get some real positive test numbers. And, again, like when we see actions like Isaiah Williams happening, you know, where he goes out to the college party and he's hanging out and he gets called for trespassing even at the party – it's like now they're not uh, some of the players and we saw it in baseball with the Indian guys and stuff, right? Some of the players aren't taking it to the level of being serious. So out of the Seattle Seahawks camp where the guy was sneaking in a girl. Um, but then, but has any action come to Isaiah? I haven't seen that. The team said that they had handled it internally. Uh, certainly they've got different things that they can do uh, and depending on the circumstances of the party, because it's very clear the, the discipline schedule was updated to reflect uh, what they called high-risk COVID-19 behavior, meaning going to a party, going to a bar, um, going to a uh, like a concert or a sporting event, all these things. But they're all, if you don't going wear to PPE. A sporting event, but you can play in one. <laughs> yeah, it's true. But it's if you're not wearing PPE, if you're not, it's about risk right. mitigation, right? You're not going to cut it all out. But, you know, if there were, I don't know how many people show up at a party at Tennessee State, if it was 10 people, they were all wearing masks. Seems unlikely, but I'm not going to sit here without the full facts and judge what the scenario was. But there are things they can do, suspensions, uh, fines for conduct detrimental. That's their first-round draft pick, uh, which, let's face it, uh, Isaiah Wilson versus Kima Siverland is a different conversation, you know. But you know, in Seattle's case, they acted swiftly uh, after they saw the video of him dressing up the woman to try to look like a player and get her into the hotel. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the good news so far is that the positivity rates are really low. The NFL has conducted like 167,000 tests over the past uh, nine days prior to today, because I don't know what the results were from yesterday's test, but nine straight days of no player positives, only six positives within the building. That tells you that players are taking this sufficiently seriously. I mean, in the building, you're not going to be safer anywhere on earth than being constantly distanced. Constantly wearing masks. Yes, you're practicing face-to-face, especially if you're a lineman. Uh, but you're being tested every day. Same thing even with games. You have a different exposure level. And everybody wants to draw the corollaries to baseball. The exposure levels are going to be higher for NFL players on the field just because you're face-to-face. Baseball is a naturally socially distanced sport. But, again, you're being tested regularly. So you've got a as close to a bubble without having a bubble as you're possibly going as you possibly can. But also you don't have the off field exposures that baseball has. And to my knowledge, correct me if I'm wrong, but to my knowledge, there's been no evidence of COVID-19 spreading on the field, spreading between guys. They're getting it because they went out to eat or they went golfing together or whatever it is. You did something else, you got it. And then you infected other people within your clubhouse. Uh, With the NFL, you don't have four-day, seven-day road trips. You don't have several game sets where you're in a hotel and you're coming and going. You're interacting with different people. With the NFL, you're going to go from the facility to the airport, from the airport to the hotel. You're not going to leave the hotel. They strengthened the travel protocols last week where not only can you not go out to eat, you can no longer pick up takeout. No, you can only get Uber Eats or room service to limit your contactless delivery to limit your exposure. You go straight from the hotel to the stadium, you play the game, 
and you go back to the airport. That's it. That's the trip. It's one night. I'm not saying this is the perfect system, but they have thought through a lot of different scenarios here to try to make it as safe as possible. You know, the biggest enemy of, of the virus is transmission. If the virus can't transmit from one person to another, it has nowhere to go. It dies. That's what they're trying to drive down. The testing alone is not enough, but testing, contact tracing, education, social distancing, masks, all those things together, regardless of what you think about you know, the science of COVID-19 and the mortality rates and all the other things that are debated constantly in our society, if you just need to keep it out, which is what the NFL is trying to do, they've done a pretty good job so far. It's early, but all really good signs. And, and Tom, I know another place that has done a pretty good job of, of you know, containing the, the disease there is, I have to ask you about this, obviously, as a Boston College graduate, I think there's only been one positive test so far. We talk about the ACC moving into game action. So just some thoughts there because, you know, obviously there have been a couple conferences that have made that decision, right, to, to move on and, um, you know, not play in the fall. Just general thoughts on the ACC continuing and and the and the you know I, I would say positive number that there's only been one positive. Well, you know, I want to talk to you about BC and how BC only had one positive test and how the ACC, ACC is still pushing forward. But with Boston College, you know, you're a Boston College guy, uh, and it's a good sign, you know, that BC has had low positivity rates so far. I think that's another advantage that the NFL has over college football which is uh, standardized procedures. Every college going back to you know, May and June when they were bringing the athletes back, everybody kind of, and conference by conference, team by team, school by school, had to develop your own protocols, how you were going to go about this. With the NFL, everything is standardized across the league in concert with um, you know, well-known infectious disease experts, the CDC, the White House Task Force, I mean, they've, you know, and other sports leagues too, they've communicated with people around the globe about what has worked there. In terms of college football and the impact on the NFL, and David, you can speak to this from all your uh, years uh, scouting colleges. I think that's another thing that gets, you know, if it's possible, it gets undersold here because every scout I talk to is so regimented. Their schedule, they had their calendars made six months in advance, knew where they were going to be. Open practice this day. I'm going to go here to here to here to here to here. I always do it this way. I eat at this place. I talk to these people. And now, not only are you not going into the schools, because the NFL hasn't even lifted the travel ban yet, so they're not even allowed to go out, but a lot of the schools that they would be scouting right now might be shut down. You know, it's not everybody across the Power Five, I know, but it's enough of them, plus a lot of these smaller conferences that uh, it's going to have a huge impact. Nobody knows for certain when the draft is going to be. Nobody knows, okay, some schools are going to, you know, Big Ten's going to try to play in the spring. Well, is the spring January? Is the spring right. March? Is it April? What, can you fit a combine in here? Is that realistic? I know Jim Nagy's going to do everything he can to save the Senior Bowl and to get guys down there, but, like, when does that happen? Uh, you know, is there a showcase for guys who don't get a chance to play, but they're going into the draft? Does anybody who's going to get drafted even play? in a spring college football season? These are all unanswered questions. The one thing we do know is it's in the collective bargaining agreement that the NFL can move the draft as late as June 2nd. The union theoretically could sign off on making it later, but June 2nd is kind of the cutoff because, you know, if you have the draft that late, well, those rookies don't have a whole lot of time in the building before all of a sudden you're right back for training camp. Right, and they don't have enough rest time also. Like, if you go play a, a 10, 12-game season, first got to think about – 
I heard Notre Dame's uh, athletic director talk about the kids have to be in the building for four to six weeks prior to a game because they haven't been working out and what kind of shape have they been in. So now when is it cool to get them back in working out, then get them and then get them playing in the games, finish a season. And then, like you said, have a mini combine, have some kind of combine where the, the NFL can get some time, some variable measurables, some ways and measures and some, you know, doctors evaluations of these kids and then do a draft, uh, you know, with any kind of process. I just think it's so it's so hard to think about. Like you said, as a scout for nearly 18 years, you're right. I knew exactly where I was going this time of year. I knew where I, I was already on the road. You know, uh, like eight days ago, I would have been in like nine, ten. Yeah, nine, ten colleges already. Yeah. So it's it's difficult. And then I think being honest with you, Tom, I think the development of players has been set back by two years because with no preseason games this year, this rookie class is not getting developed even close to what other rookie classes because they didn't have any OTAs, they didn't have any offseason really where they were in the building around each other, getting chemistry. Now you get to camp, there's no games to really, you know, excel, to prove yourself, to make the squad really, because how live is practice? It's not going to be that live. And so now you have no evaluations too. Once they get let go and they get cut, how does the Giants grade a Jets player? That might still be in town. That might, that's still be in town. that's the undersold thing is I can't tell you how many scouts I talk to right now, like, you know, pro yeah. side scouts and executives and personnel who all say like, we're watching tape from last year. All the guys we think are on the bubble with teams. We're watching their 2019 tape, you know, with college players, we're watching their, or with rookies, we're watching their college tape right. and trying to try to project the roster based on that. Like how in the world do you, do you do that? I mean, this is going to be, uh, it, it, it's going to be wild west. Again, don't overlook the dynamic of the expanded practice squads because you're probably going to see some guys. Look at look at all the veterans who've been coming in on minimum deals of late. If you look at a lot of those names that are coming in, uh, some of those guys are going to be the ones who get cut and they try to bring them back on the practice squad just to have another guy at their disposal. Um, you know, so this is all going to be a really interesting dynamic to say nothing of, you know, listen, when I talk to agents, every agent says two things. One, if you're a top 100 guy, I'm advising you not to, uh, not to play in any spring football season, to just spend that time training. The second thing is, oh, my God, I'm going to go broke paying these guys to train for six months instead of three months for the draft. I mean, it's, it, it, it's all going to be completely uh, different than what it's, it's been in the past, but you're also, you're also going to learn who your best scouts are because you'll know who has the relationships. And, David, you know that. That's a huge part of of being a scout, it's okay. It's one thing when you go into the school and you go to their, you know, their one open day uh, for the year, you know, their NFL day. It's another thing if you can get the guys on the phone and actually get the background on players and do the other things that the best scouts are doing anyway. Absolutely. And, and I, I know when I, when I think about this time of year, I, I mean, we've talked about it, Ryan and I, on several shows. Those relationships are the key. And like what the Giants just did, they let a lot of veteran guys go at the draft and they went young. Now, I don't know if they're regretting that decision because those young people that they just hired might not have the relationships that those old guys definitely had. You know, and the other part of the development that I think is a year behind is this obviously with kids not being able to play this year, they can't get better. I mean, how many seniors that as juniors weren't that good or weren't the, you know, weren't great? I mean, look at the number one overall pick this year. Nobody knew his name going into this season. 
And if they did, they're lying. And therefore, you know, it's like now he's the number one pick overall because he tore it up a whole season at LSU and he looked great with an entire NFL roster at his disposal. So it's just like that kind of. They, they, they knew the like name, but it was just that of, guy who used to play at Ohio State. <laughs> that wasn't the name. That was the guy that played at Ohio State. Exactly. So that's what I'm saying. This is like, you know, you have these great players that emerge their senior year and they turn into a great a great story and a great marketing thing. But, you know, when without the senior year, you're going to lose that year of development. And then the rookie year of development, the ones that this year are losing. And, you know, the retreads that are from the 2019 class that didn't really get a chance to retread, sign, sign deals, come into a rookie camp, show they're healthy, whatever the case is. So you're really missing. I think it's going to wind up. You're going to see the effects of this for at least two years in the NFL. The NFL I mean, I feel before. for a lot of the um, you know the undrafted guys who didn't get signed back yeah. in April, and then there was no churn. A lot The churn meaning you normally have the signings of all the undrafted rookies. Teams fill out usually most of their roster right after the draft. Most of their guys up to 90 with undrafted rookies. Then you go to a rookie camp. Usually most teams will cut one, two, three guys that they had just signed the week before. They also have a wave of tryout guys in at that who aren't under contract, and they'll sign a few of those. That's the churn is the opportunity just to get on the field. I mean, there's some quarterbacks right now that haven't even gotten a workout. Guys who I thought had an offset, you know, uh, outside chance of getting drafted because quarterbacks is, you know, once you get around six and seven, chuck a dart, what do you like? Um, you know, guys like Mason Fine and Kelly Bryant, who you know, Kelly Bryant used to be at Clemson, then finished in Missouri. Mason Fine put up massive numbers in North Texas. Guys were like intriguing, but just as kind of a probably won't even get taken in the seventh, but like, a, you know, PFA type. Well, those guys don't get signed because only a handful of, of underdog rookie quarterbacks got signed, maybe 10 guys. And now they don't even get that rookie camp to go show what they can do and get in front of the coaches and throw some passes. Now it's August and it's we don't have reps to give an extra quarterback. So these guys haven't even gotten to a practice uh, at all. And I think that also when, when everybody looked at the expanded practice squads, the first thing they thought was, well, that's the opportunity. Those undrafted rookies didn't get to show up in the preseason to get many reps in camp. They'll get kept in those expanded practice squads. Maybe for some of them, but some of those spots are also going to go to veterans, which is going to make it even harder for those guys. So you're absolutely right. You're almost going to have, you know, for the guys who stick with it, kind of two rookie classes in one in 2021 you're going to have all the normal guys fighting to make a roster late round picks undrafted guys in 2021 but you're also going to have a wave of 2020 guys who feel like they never got their fair shake they're all going to be in that pot as well it's going to be a you know flooded uh, marketplace for the young players and that will benefit veterans at a time that everything we talked about financially over the next couple of years here is working against us and I saw a lot of those players at ANC as the director of ANC when I traveled. You know, we did five combines around the country this year. Many of the players that showed up, Tom, were we didn't get a pro day. So we need to get verified numbers because they didn't have a chance to measure and weigh. And so they came to ANC and we made measured them. And, you know, I wrote reports on them. And like there were quarterbacks like what DeAndre Francois that was at Florida State, Mike Glass that was at Eastern uh, Michigan. Um, Geez, I got a whole list of them that showed up that, again, they can sling it. And they would have been rookie camp guys that would have been in sling it, and you never know what impression they make. Yeah, they Francois make, so. was a good one. Another one I was thinking and finished up at Hampton, of course, had some serious off-the-field issues at Florida State. But the people at Hampton vouched for him when scouts you know, asked around about him. You know, it was going to be a team that would have to swallow deep and go, okay, we know there's some really bad stuff that's going to come with you know just bringing him in. There's going to be you know, a couple of headlines about it. but 
we trust our information. We're going to give him a shot. Now that shot went into ether and, and guys like him and Mason Fine and Kelly Bryant and uh, Nathan Rourke from, I think he's Ohio. Uh, there's a bunch of those guys who right. are just, they're, they're out of luck right now. And that's, you know, that's too bad. And I know me and David had a chance actually to speak to DeAndre Francois as he was going through the process. I know that, you know, we, we talk about the repercussions and the impact. David mentioned the two-year impact potentially with, with everything happening from the professional standpoint. I'm also thinking about the college standpoint because for these programs that are moving to the spring, are they going to turn around and then play a fall season after moving to spring? How are they going to fluctuate with that? How are they, how are they going to figure that? I know I saw Jeff Baum, the, the head coach from University of Purdue, um, had an idea about, you know, can't basically canceling spring practice and moving some things around and, and changing up practice schedules. But I just think that from every level, college, NFL, professional, business side of everything, there's just so many negative repercussions. And and I know, Tom, we talked about the ACC seeming to be in okay standing, Boston College. Kind of the last question I wanted to leave you off of here was Alabama. We have their first week uh, testing on campus, right? 500 positive tests opened in 311 in the initial intake. How much trouble are the is the SEC and Alabama specifically if they're not if they're not able to play football this fall? You almost got off that old question without a glitch, right? That was good. <laughs> I know um, most, almost. I mean, I would just say this: I hadn't seen those numbers. On, I hadn't seen those numbers on the University of Alabama. I, I just know that when we were initially looking at this back in March and April, and the talk began about you know the likelihood of football being played, college football has far more complications because of the campus aspect, because they are universities, they have other students, because of the housing situations, even though there's plenty of places where all the football players live together, they still have different exposures in classes, at parties, things like that. And there are some schools, some conferences who are going to say, well, if other students aren't on campus, why is the football team going to be on campus trying to play? At the same time, similar to the NFL, the safest place the college players are going to be is going to be in the building. I mean, if those guys go home, I mean, you can imagine with NFL players, if college players go home, what are they going back to? What is the environment? If, we're, if our concern is COVID-19 for college-age athletes, well, their exposure levels are going to be greater back home living with people who are coming and going, potentially in challenging circumstances. On campus, at least, you're being tested regularly. Uh, you have structure. These are, these are real concerns, I think, that – that they have to address, uh, you know. So how that all plays out, I, honestly, I, I can't say I haven't spent as much time looking at the college, um, you know, different permutations of what they might do as I have at the NFL. But I would say that I, I think that the intake numbers uh, for the NFL reflected the same thing that they did for the college programs coming back. And surely uh, as students get back on campus too, which is you're going to have your most cases ideally on intake. Because intake is people are coming from all over. You don't know what they've been doing. You don't know where they've been. The NFL had, I want to say it was you know, 50 or 60 guys landed on the reserve COVID-19 list in the first few days just through the line. Because you know you're going to get cases. You isolate those. You take care of them. Some guys were away for a day. Uh, you know, if they had a close contact with one of the positives, some guys were away for over two weeks. Until you pass through all the protocols, and there's this entire rubric that the NFL has of if you're symptomatic, if you're asymptomatic, if you're positive, if you're negative, if you had exposure to a person who was positive, but they were asymptomatic, or if they were symptomatic, 
all these different things. Okay, we're going to isolate people for the appropriate amount of time. Then yeah. we'll bring them back again. That's the contact tracing aspect of this. Everybody wears that thing around their neck all the time. If you get too close to somebody, it beeps. You're wearing a mask. You're socially distanced. Uh, and you're also trying to, ed- to you know, push the education piece of that. Let you guys understand that, hey, just like you know, what we always talk about of don't put your brothers at risk, here it's especially true. Don't go home and do something. It's going to jeopardize what we're trying to do as a football team and jeopardize the health of the people around you. Again, I think that, you know, our debate too often revolves around, you know, the science of this. There's not a lot of scientists uh, in the NFL. And the one doctor we had was the first guy to opt out. So it's not as if you got a bunch of experts on COVID-19 and a bunch of amateur epidemiologists there. But what you do have is a bunch of guys who want to make money playing football, coaches, players, everybody. They want to play. They love the game. They like not not getting a paycheck, okay? They like not, uh, you know, having their bank account, you know, be zapped by this entire thing. How are you going to do that? You got to not, you know, cause exposure. Whatever you believe about the science, again, the mortality rates and, you know, the case numbers and the testing and all this stuff, the NFL is going to operate. They're going to play games as long as there's not so many positive cases that they can't field a team. Or unless, potentially, and again, none of this has been like worked out. There's not bright lines here, but unless there's some serious cases. To this point, there have been no serious illnesses of any of the positive cases the NFL has had. And they have, relatively speaking, based on doing 167,000 tests or whatever it is, very few cases themselves. And that is a credit to the 10,000 people who have been tested at some point, including 2,700 players or so, including all the coaches, the support people, the medical staffs, everybody else. They're driving the numbers down. I mean, the, the statistics and the science, like I know that there's this great debate in the country about it, but the NFL wants to play. The people in the league want to play. How, how do you do that? Don't have a bunch of infections. Make the right decisions. That's what they've done so far. Great stuff, Tom. I really appreciate you coming on tonight, brother. That was that was awesome. I mean, seriously, that was incredible uh, insight, honestly, to the NFL stuff that you get that we don't. And, uh, yeah, I really appreciate you coming on tonight and being part of this third episode ever, our second guest ever. You're an answer to a trivia question now. So, yeah. So I just I just love that uh, you said before something along the lines of in one of our early podcasts I said I was going isn't this episode three? Well, early, <laughs> what, yeah, early. I, I really preferred your early stuff by episode three. It had run its it, course. It's run its course. It's all it's over now. Everybody's heard all my sticks by now. David's memory's yeah. going a little bit with old age, so we have to forgive him a little bit. <laughs> oh, the right. two of you. Thank you for having having me i i feel honored to have been here david you're a good friend good to see you thank you very much appreciate i'll talk to you soon buddy awesome thanks tom well that was mr tom felicero nfl network's own incredible conversation we had him on for a little longer than we originally anticipated because i mean you guys heard that conversation he hit us with a lot of key info and if you are enjoying what you're listening to right now we thank you so much for tuning in if you like what you're hearing Join us Friday Night Scout School where we teach agents, coaches, players, and fans how to see football through a scout's perspective, through a scout's eye. This week, we are going into the linebacker group. We will be breaking down Tremaine Edmonds, Miles Jack, K.J. Wright, among others. Our season pass is still a great value to sign up for. I would definitely suggest it every Friday, 9 Eastern time. Register now at NFL Draft Bible. 
Bet.com to right now, right now. Do it right now because, as you can see, we are pumped up about football every single week. Uh, David, uh, just quick takeaways from Tom, man. A lot of a lot of information thrown out there. Uh, anything that's sticking with you now as we're kind of transitioning to the next segment here in the podcast? Well, what's really interesting to me is, again, how – and I'm not being negative. It's just interesting to me that – you heard them. You heard Tom say they have they they've thought about that, but they don't have an answer for that yet. You know, this is something they have to still get clarity on. That they have to understand how the playoffs are going to be sorted out. They're going to have to sort out if some team does get ten, you know, positives in a day and maybe can't play a game. And you know, how's that con- in the NFLPA and the NFL still have to talk about when do they administer the test in order to make sure that the positive tests or negative tests come back far enough? And we're two weeks away from games. Like it's supposed to kick off in like two weeks, but and again, it, it's not a negative to me because the conversations are great. They're having it, but what's interesting to me is that the answers aren't done yet. You know, I, and again, I know they don't have to be done right away. That they have some time here to work on it, but you know, they've been in training camp for what three and a half weeks now, and you would have thought that knowing how tests being administered on game day or prior to a game would be. Uh, concrete solution and decision by now you know what he what tom had said about how everybody wants to play and everybody's going to do the right thing to play you know i cross my finger and pray to god that they do to be frank because i want to see football played with or without stands or fans and stands but that being said i've been on an nfl team i've been on the trips i know when guys get to certain towns they usually go out to eat and grab dinner out and you know again if they're not able to do that and they're going to eat Uber Eats or they're going to eat, you know, uh, what the training table is and then have to go sit down in a room. I mean, some of these guys are going to be fidgety. Some of these guys, that's not their process. You know, for a lot of people, I know today on the um, State of the Union for football, Rick had guys on talking about um, mental health. OK, and they were talking about how mental health hits. I mean, some guys that are extroverts, this has been very hard on them because they can't go out. They can't be who they are. They can't be Mr. Personality. And, you know, they're taking it hard. Now, if you're going to tell me, basically, I'm flying you into the city, you're going to sit in your room, you're going to eat, you're going to go play your game, and then we're going to take you back home where you're allowed to go to the facility, go home and nothing else. I mean, that is a very diligent regiment for someone to keep up for four to five months. You know, and, and again, how they do it, the best, I think Anthony Lynn said, the best team that handles the next four to five months it will be the ones that win this yeah. year. And we talk, we've talked we talked about this a few times, David. I mean, the one positive that the NFL has going for it is they've had some time to learn from other leagues' mistakes, learn from their, from their successes, and develop a plan, right? Like some of these, you know, the NBA, NHL, they were, they were right in the middle of their season, and then they got thrown this curveball, and they had to really react on the fly. One league in particular that we want to highlight here as a success story, right, is the NBA with their bubble system, and they've been able to, you know, to really flourish. And, and, and you know, we haven't seen any negative things about it. Obviously, it's, there's going to be certain details of their league that's going to be different, right? Like we talk about less players on a roster comparative to an NFL team, and the ability that they can put, you know, teams into a bubble. But speak to me now a little bit, my friend, about 
just the positive aspects of the bubble, the NBA idea, and how they've been able to maintain and flourish through everything. Well, I think you've really seen a, a strong positive on how to get it done with the N- NBA. You know, the NBA is a team that, or the league, that, you know, they have smaller rosters. They were able to go to, I think, Walt Disney World and just bubble it, where people coming into the bubble had to be tested and cleared and people leaving, um, you know, they, they were good to go, but they come back and you had to be bubbled and cleared. And, you know, all that testing, all that diligence and having a conf- controlled environment, I think is really the, the right solution for the time that they had to do it. And you saw very little on intake positives. And I don't think they've had a positive too much new, new case positive. I'll call it while in the bubble because they protected their players to the nth degree. So things like that, I think you really got to, you know, applaud the NBA for doing, um, giving the, the players opportunity to opt out if they wanted to or to play. And most of them chose to play from what I understand. And then, you know, now they're in their playoff season and you're seeing great games like we saw against Oklahoma City and Houston the other night where it was only a three-point difference. And that series was tied up two to two uh, after that game, you know, and then you got great, player you know got again another great series going in um with uh what is it san antonio and uh or i'm sorry uh utah and denver utah and denver that's a you know a three two split right now with denver winning tonight so you know again you see these great games the competition is there yeah, you don't have the fans and the roar of the crowd that I talked about you know a couple weeks ago, but you still have competition players in a safe environment being able to compete with each other they're able to still go after and try to win a championship together so i think the nba really should be commended um for what they do and now look at the nfl the nfl is talking about bubbling the playoffs right They're, they're kicking around the idea of bubbling the playoffs and i think that's really come from the success of the nba and what the nba has been able to do for their their players the safety and to get the games played they're taking lessons from that. Like you said, they've had time. The NFL's had time to learn. They've seen the, the, the success of the NBA, and that's an aspect. They're, I think they're really kicking around to uh, figure out if they should do it and how to do it. And one cool uh, moment outside of, you know, everything that's going on, right? Like we saw the Lakers last night win. At one point, it was they were winning 24-8 to eight on Kobe Bryant's birthday. So I need to mention that, man, because that was just a super cool moment there, you know, to celebrate the Mamba. Uh, basketball is, is a really mixed emotion for me right now because I'm a Philadelphia uh, 76ers fan, and they just got swept, um, and it was a terrible showing, um, to say the least. You know, and they, they got swept by the Celtics, which – I cannot tell you my hatred for, for the Boston Celtics. So not, not great. Um, if there's if there's one player, David, and I'll, I'll give you one, right? If there's one player that's really – because I, I feel like every year we see guys in, during playoff time really assert themselves to that upper echelon. We talk about a guy, and I'm going to start off with Luka Doncic, who is the p- small forward, shooting guard, whatever you want to call him. He's, he's a point forward, right? Like he is for the Dallas Mavericks. We're number 77 and making it look good in a game that number 77 does not typically look too good at. And we saw him with the buzzer beater the other day, the triple-double. 
this is this is what playoff basketball and playoff in general is about, man. We see these guys rise to the rise to the ranks and there's and uh, develop that star label, even even though he probably was a star before that. But just a, a cool moment, Luka Doncic. And uh, if if I had to pick a winner so far in the postseason, that would be him. And uh, if I had to pick a loser, it would def- definitely be, unfortunately, my Philadelphia 76ers firing their head coach today, Brett Brown, a day after getting swept by the Boston Celtics. Yeah, I mean, when I watch basketball, I, like I told you before, I, I can't say I know all the players and everything. It's not a passion of mine. I just like watching the competition, and I'll, I'll watch it on. But, you know, over in Oklahoma City, I, I'm going to mispronounce this guy's name because I bitch your names all the time. But it's Gillianis Alexander. Yes, it's, yep, Gillianis Alexander. Yep, he's sick. He's good. Yeah, I think he's been a guy who's been showing me something through the competition in this setting. The other night, Um, you know, he had like six assists. I think he had 10 defensive rebounds or something. So, you know, I always like the guys who will go crash the boards, pull that defensive rebound, take the take an opportunity away from, you know, the, the opponent from scoring and give it give flip it for his team to, you know, go into transition and and then get some points ahead. So, guys like that that crash the board, they're grittier, that they're, they're they're more my kind of guy. So, I'm going to highlight him and give him a little credit. I'm not sure if he's a great player or not, but I, what I'm seeing out of him so far in the playoffs, it's really fun to watch him. Absolutely. And kind of my last segment here on basketball, David, I have to ask you, because I'll tell you, when I was growing up, right, my dude was Allen Iverson, the answer. No bet. Oh, man. So t- tell me, man, you obviously we're a little bit of a different era. Who was your guy growing up? Who was the hero basketball-wise for David Turner, if there was one? Well, you know, I loved the game of basketball back then, because back then you had, you know, you had uh, still Bird, McHale, and the Chief, at the Celtics, you had Magic and you had, you know, Kareem down and, and, and Worthy and Cooper all playing down in LA. You had the, the bad boys in Detroit with, with all those guys. You had Ewing and Stark in New York. Like you had, you had Barkley and then you still have Kim Elijah one and, or, and, and, um, at the Hawks, you had, you know, uh, Dominique Wilkins. So, Again, for me, basketball was the, the the talent in the league was spread around the league more, and you and you really could turn on a basketball game every night and and watch great competition. I mean, even when Sean Kemp and the Glove Gary Payton were up in you know Seattle at the SuperSonics, they were running teams. So you know the Gary the Glove was one of my favorites. He talked trash, he deed you up, he told you you were not scoring on me tonight. But again, when you want to talk the most exciting player I ever got to see live, it's been Michael Jordan. One time he came over to the Warriors. Uh, I went to see the game. I got tickets and he scored, I think it was 66 points and it looked like it was two. Like you didn't notice it. It was just so smooth. It was so, so crisp. It was just unbelievable. And again, you know, the, the Bay Area home team, we had, you know, run, run, run DMC. <laughs> we had Hardaway and Mullins and stuff. So again, the league had so many good players and every team was in com- competition. I mean, damn, now that I think about it, you had Carl Malone and John Stockton in Utah. So Crazy. I was, I was very fortunate to be in an era of basketball that when I got to watch it, it was like you could turn on any game and you saw, competition and great players and then like you said Allen Iverson was just ridiculous in his ability to play 
Um, you know, I, I watched his documentary on Netflix uh, not too long ago. I just felt for the man because, you know, if that if that young man had had half the advantages of some of these other kids and not that that whole story. I mean, he, he I, that was one player I've seen in my life that might have rivaled Michael Jordan. So if you ever seen uh, have you ever seen Allen Iverson's highlights as a quarterback as well? It was absolutely insane. Uh, he's he's an insane insane athlete. Like like I said, he's one of the most rare athletes I've ever witnessed. Yeah, absolutely. So we have David Turner bringing us back to the golden age of basketball. Of course, the the president and owner at Maverick Sports Consulting. Here at Maverick Sports Consulting, we are poised to help agents players, coaches, prepare for their next opportunity, whether that be training you for an upcoming interview, assisting you to prepare for, for an, a negotiation, or even learn what questions to ask your potential client if you're an agent. We take pride in our training you on your next opportunity so you can position yourself to maximize that opportunity. Now moving on to our last section, as always, every week we go to the Twitterverse and we ask for mailbag section Ask for questions for us to answer. We got a good list this week. Really good. We thank everybody so much that submitted a question this week. I think we have five or six good, really great questions here, David. So getting off here from Mr. Mark Jarvis at What's On Draft NFL. He said, hey, at David Turner, uh, question for Mavs Sports Take. A lot of sources that I've read state that area scouts generally watch their tape in the morning, but don't write their reports until the evening at the hotel. How did you do it on the road, and did you learn from others with this approach? Yes, yeah, so here's how the schedule usually is run when you're on the road doing a college visit. You're, at, you're a guest at their home, so you have to go do your tape, your interviewing, your question asking of all the important people, whether it be the strength coach or meeting with the trainers, meeting with the position coaches, pro liaison, some, some schools it's a head coach that meets with you. You're at their disposal. So you have to call ahead. And as Tom said earlier, we know our schedule six months in advance because we've already made the calls. How do you want us to come in? What day? What's best for you guys? So we can make sure we hit all our schools in an efficient way and we're not just running all over the place and uh, wasting time and money. So it's really a, a very well thought out process. So, yes, a lot of times the schools ask you to come in early and then do some tape work in the middle of the day and then go watch practice, and then you don't get a chance to write your reports until later in the afternoon and, or the evening. I always enjoyed that because it gave me some time to digest my notes, gave me some time to digest what the coaches may have said or what the uh, film I watched, and then just process it a little bit before sitting down and writing my note or writing my reports. Other scouts, you know, other scouts were like, nah, uh, I, I want to just, instead of going to lunch with the group, I'm going to go over here and type them out right now because they wanted to be fresh and go with it. I always like to digest it, make sure I really understood everything I was told that day, and then go back to my notes and then put a report together where my feelings were, are, are reflected in that report. Um, I felt if I wrote them too quick, it was uh, it was often uh, I was I was making a lot of corrections because I tried that and it just didn't work for me. I was going to point that out, David, that I felt like, you know, just sitting on your thoughts and collecting them was probably the direct result from that. I know personally, I never finish writing the reports uh, similarly, right? Like I always take my notes, 
sit back for a little bit, maybe go do something else, come back to it, and then really collect my thoughts. For you during that experience, was there, did you see, did you feel like there were a lot of instances where you may have altered your opinion on somebody kind of sitting back for a little bit? Or do you think that genuinely, generally, I'm sorry, that, that your opinion kind of stayed the same through that process? Well, when I wrote it too fast, because I tried writing it quicker, I found that I'd go back and be like, eh, you know, that I overstated something or I understated something. When I allowed myself to really process the information and then write the report, you know, I, I sometimes you're on the road and you get really busy. And there were times when I might have wrote a report a day or two later even. And I would go back and you know what? When I get done the report, I'm like, man, I really like that guy. Like, look at what I just said about him two days later. Or maybe, you know, I, I don't really like this guy and I need to do more work on it. You know, I always reflected. I love writing my early August and, and September, October reports and then reflect on them. And then, you know, watch them later tape it and then be like, you know what? That is the guy I thought he was early in the season. Or, man, he's come, he's come a long way. He had a much better second half of the year. So... For me, I like the reflection. I like taking my time to do it and digesting it. I don't think it, it uh, alters my opinion to the point where I'm much off because, you know, I'm kind of a perfectionist with what I like to do. And my verbiage is very important to me. But I, I do feel that for me and my mindset, my mentality, I need that digestion in order to be correct uh, as often as I'm correct. And our next question now is from NFL Prospect Podcast, which actually is a podcast that I do, a part of the Believe in Podcast Network, Believe in NFL Draft Prospect Pod. Uh, for David, is there any strange conversation with past or current players that come to mind while you were on the scouting trail? I, you always hear these, these instances, right? Like strange questions a player might be asked in, in a team meeting or whatnot. Is there anything that you can tell us about that maybe was like a really awkward conversation, strange conversation, something that just off the top of your head. Oh, wait a minute. Is this question coming from you since you're part of that podcast? Not directly, but I definitely did have an, a semblance of this question. Yes. Gotcha. Okay. Um, no. So I, I, as far as strange goes, I think there's closed off people that don't trust people well or, or right off the bat. So you gotta, you gotta find a tactic and a way to really, um, engage certain players and you know people do it in the most inappropriate way sometimes uh but for me i've always been one to sit somebody down one-on-one -on -one and really stride stride to get them to connect with me whether it's over cooking family um you know fishing whatever like try to draw that connection to make them comfortable and then go forward i mean there, I'll tell you this story. There was a young scout one time at the University of Southern Utah. He didn't understand where he was. And one thing that I got to learn early from Dave Gettleman was know your audience. Always know where you're walking in, who you're sitting down with. Do your research on that person and that environment. It'll lead you to success more often than even knowing all your facts. Because, again, you can say, oh, I don't know that. Let me go look that up for you. But if you if you don't say it in the right way, you can get, you know, really ripped. Well, this young scout walked in and was meeting with uh, the pro liaison. And he asked this guy a completely inappropriate question about, you know, if this player were to kill somebody, would it be a gun or a knife? And I'm like, whoa, what? 
and the pro liaison looked at him and goes, yeah, man, like we're, you know, we're, we're pretty much a Mormon school. We don't talk like that here. Um, and he was just like, no, I just want to know if you, if he was going to do it, would he be personal? And I'm like, he kept pushing. I, I, I took the young man out to the hallway and I just said, listen, you can't ask these questions. Like that's not appropriate. And, and he goes, well, my GM told me, I said, I don't care who or what your GM told you to do. That question at this school is inappropriate. And I told him, I feel that question anywhere is inappropriate, but especially at this school and you're going to close it down and cost us the ability to find out the information we need to find out today because you're being inappropriate. So take my lead, relax, I'll get us the information, but it's going to take us a little longer now than you, you might want. And the kid shut up. We went back in. I know that pro, pro liaison, that relationship is really, really strong because he played at the Raiders and I was at the Raiders when he played there. So therefore, he and I go back. I apologize. We move forward. We had a good visit. But that when that young guy got into that, I was just like, man, that you can't do that. You got to. I know what he wanted to do is to know how gritty and how how uh, how much. Sorry, but the word air quotes here dog the guy had in him to compete and the you know competitiveness of him but there's so many ways to ask that and if you want to catch him off guard again there's ways to catch him off guard without being offensive and that's something that a lot of young scouts don't know how to do and they they ruin relationships because they're too crass in their approach so you know that's one story i i can share with you guys got it I, I was assuming that there may have been some other stories that are probably a little too sensitive for this type of conversation, this type of airwave. So appreciate the story there, David. We're going on to Ricky Valero now. Question, which quarterback has the most to gain with the Big Ten not playing? So I'll take this one since I've been on the uh, on the trail heavy so far. So I, I'm assuming that this is saying, like, obviously, you know, some quarterbacks not getting the opportunity. Which ones are still – set to play football that have an opportunity here. So my mind immediately, I don't know why it goes to the SEC. I think there's a couple guys, I would say Kyle Trask from the university of Florida and um, Jamie Newman, the quarterback transfer from Wake Forest at the university of Georgia. They're kind of the assumed guys in the senior class that are going to take big leaps. Both guys have varying backgrounds. Jamie Newman played a bunch of Wake Forest. Obviously he's going to have, you know, some more weapons at Georgia, a nice staff. Todd Monken coming in there as the offensive coordinator. He definitely has a great opportunity. And then we have Kyle Trask, who took over last year uh, for Felipe Franks halfway through the year, uh, who was, you know, did a pretty solid job. And then Trask comes in, and he's probably the best Florida quarterback to play in, in quite a few years. And, you know, sometimes I feel like that's overrated to a degree because was he the best Florida quarterback in some time? Yes, but – just because a player's better than bad doesn't necessarily mean they're a prospect. Now, that's not saying that Kyle Trask doesn't have some redeeming qualities. I think that he definitely does. But those are just kind of a couple guys there that I think still have the opportunity to make that big jump in the quarterback class, uh, which is obviously heavy in junior talent right now. We talk about guys like Trevor Lawrence and uh, Justin Fields from Ohio State, and then even Trey Lance, Richard sophomore from North Dakota State, are kind of the assumed guys in the class. So I think about a couple of those senior quarterbacks in the SEC that are really eyeing for huge seasons and huge catapult of their draft stock. Moving now, Mr. Seth Mitzel at Skull Mitzel ask, and we talked about this a little bit with Tom, could you explain how the practice squad works this year? 
So we, we talked about it getting expanded to 16 players. Tom also mentioned that there is not an age limit, right, or experience limit on who can be on a practice squad. So obviously, David, it seems like more opportunity uh, potentially for a, you know, what has been a limited offseason, to say the least, in that, in that respect. Well, what's interesting here is what I, I and I and I I differ with Tom on this one. I didn't get a chance to, to talk to him about it because we had so much going on and it was a great conversation. But allowing veterans that have earned the right to get paid full salaries to be put on the practice squad versus being expanding the roster to me is something the NFLPA should not have done. The PA should say, hey, if you want us to guard your back by having veterans around so you can play week in and week out, they should then instead of having a 53-man roster, bump that to 55 or 56 and let the veterans stay on the roster making the, you know, even if it's a minimum salary, make the minimum salary. By allowing them going down to the practice squad where guys are going to make five to six thousand dollars a week, that's a lot different for a veteran that's earned the right to make the top the top dollar you know it takes over three years to be a a vested veteran um 3.8 games i think it is now so you know these are guys that are seeing second contracts and you know they might be coming due this might be their last season their last parachute the golden parachute to to go and get some money but by sitting on a practice squad yeah, I know you get to stay in shape and stay in the good graces of the NFL, but you're making five, six grand a week versus if you're on the active roster, you might have made, you know, 20 or 30, you know? So um, I, I thought that was one thing the NFLPA did poorly because they should have pushed to expand the actual rosters, then let the practice squad stay younger um, and maybe not go to 16, but go to 13 or something, have some younger players around. Um, cause right now I think the NFL might cut some, some, they, again, think about the business of it. If they cut the veteran player who's owed, uh, you know, veteran minimum a deal and put them on the practice squad and have them there for two to three weeks, they're making, they're saving a lot of money and they keep the rookie kid on the active who's half as cheap. Now they can move cap space in a way where it it favors them to have the veteran still around. They still travel with the veteran. So if they need to activate him, he's there. But the young kid's on the active roster making more money than he is. And again, yeah, if he gets activated, he'll get the game check. It'll be at a veteran minimum, I'm sure. But if he's not, you know, week in and week out, he's making less money than the the young kid that they kept to save save their cap room. So, again, I think there's a lot of games that we're going to see come played. Uh, on cut down day and i think that's is one aspect that the, the pa got wrong is they should have forced roster extension I- expansion versus practice squad expansions to help the and teams and their salary the last camp. question here we have lucas uh at lucas one two three nine three has a question uh he wants to brace us that it's a political question and you know we're uncensored here so we're going to talk about everything right so he says i have a pl- on us uh, uh, I, I shouldn't say uncensored. We're unmuzzled around here. So says, I have a political question. Could you talk about the percentage of fans the NBA lost due to political views? We're unmuzzled, baby. Whatever they want. And how that could affect the NFL. Because he, he thinks that it's not being talked about at all. 
something you might consider potentially. So, David, I don't know if you want to jump on this one first. Uh, I mean, my initial thoughts is right, like the fact that people stopped watching basketball, if that was their position, because of the Black Lives Matter movement, it's it's childish, right? Like there is a real life issue that we need people to be able to voice their opinion and whether I'm not going to say whether you're on the side because I am clearly on the on the Black Lives Matter side, right? Like there is there was a movement of people feeling strongly about something. Let's take it as the the core of everything. We we do not know these players. Uh, mo- well, I should say most of us don't know these players that we are watching on an everyday basis. Why is what their political views are not even political, societal, like just being a human? Why are their views? being held against your ability to enjoy a basketball game. I think that that is just the most nearsighted thing in the world. You're taking away from, from the actual conversation. You're avoiding the conversation. You're saying, I don't agree with that guy. I don't want to watch basketball if he's included. So I think that there is it's just such a nearsighted view of things. I hope it doesn't affect the NFL, right? The viewership in case, you know, some people are outspoken with their position and then people are very, you know, intimidated by the fact of like people have the opportunity to believe in what they want to believe. But I guess, unfortunately in the world that we live in, some people are going to act like that. Some people are going to have that view. I just think it's a, it's a very unfortunate thing that we can't even enjoy sports because we don't agree with what somebody personally thinks in a, in a uh, I just think it's disgusting to be honest. So, well, you know, here's, here's the thing. <clears throat> when, when Colin started kneeling, and, and, you know, Reed and those guys started kneeling. People started getting upset about it until it was politicized by our current president. And he talked about it and tweeted about it. At that time, six people were doing the silent protest of kneeling during the anthem. It was a protest, people. It was not a disrespectful thing towards the men and women who serve for our country. It was not a disrespectful thing to people who have fought for the right for them to be able to protest. See, the protest part of this is what bu- people get upset about. But without civil unrest, we wouldn't even be a country. It go back to when we started out, we were we became a country when it started with civil unrest in the Northeast and through the, the colonies that against an oppressor that they felt wronged by, by taxation without representation mainly, Okay. So now we have another group of Americans t- taking to the streets, doing civil unrest, protesting to show they have a disagreement with what they feel is an oppressor. Well, if you're part of the oppressing group, yeah, you're probably taking offense to this because you, you would rather them not talk about it. You would rather them keep it quiet and, you know, be good and go home. But here's the thing. And this might not be a popular view. So I'm going to preface this for all our fans. I am in the mindset and of the belief that if you cannot use or do a protest in a cubicle, it should not be allowed on a football field. Because when you cross that threshold, you are going to work. The professional environment is not observed enough in the NFL or in locker rooms or around a lot of sports. You have to understand, yes, these players have platforms and they can go off campus and they can hold their platforms, do their marches, 
and I will be right next to them because I'm in full and utter support of this Black Lives Move matter. But if you're going to come into work and try to put a protest on in your cubicle and the boss is going to call HR and say, hey, he's made, you know, Bob over there is making Sandy uncomfortable because of his protests on whatever the case may be. Well, then how can you allow something similar on a football field? Okay. My whole take is I think that this conversation needs to be had in every locker room, every building, everywhere in the world, because racism needs to be just just stomped out. I wish there was a mask and social distancing that we can put on to keep this virus from, you know, multiplying all the way through our society and being enrooted in so many people. But we don't. And it's got to be stomped out in a hard way. I just think a professional work environment is something that should be safe for everybody to come to work in and everybody to walk in a locker room and on a field and be safe in. And if it doesn't happen upstairs in in a ticket office or in a VP's office, then it can't happen in a locker room. Whatever decision Roger Goodell and ownerships make, it's got to be universal. So workplace is the same whether it's in a locker room or upstairs. I know over the last few years, there's been a lot of training on discrimination and on different things that have happened throughout the NFL. And I applaud the NFL for doing that. I know when I was at the Carolina Panthers, um, Marty Herney and, and coach sat in the same training I did and everybody participated. It was a great training session. Um, and, and again, I know they're making strides. I just hope that that strides reaches the entire building and not just one aspect or another. You know, until the entire society actually has a vision to see the racism, to see how everybody is treated differently, we will never heal as a country and move forward as the United States of America, you know, for the people, for everybody who's here. And and that needs to be fixed, in my opinion. And it's fixed through conversation and conviction in your conversation and a tolerance for the other side. You have to hear the other side. You have to be tolerant of the other side. You can't just be violent and angry against the other side and then go completely off air and not hear their side. Because if they're challenging your viewpoint, you have to have the intelligence, integrity, and the passion for your own viewpoint to come back at them, but be respectful, be professional, be somebody that people look up to versus just that loud idiot in the corner speaking loudly. Right. I think that's my biggest thing is like nobody's willing to have the conversation. People are yelling and not sitting back and actually having the conversation. Quick side note here. I am a teacher. I work at a charter school in New Jersey where I will tell you 78% of our, of our um, student population is Hispanic, 20 plus percent is African American, and less than 1% is white. We are trying to be a restorative, um, a restorative system. We're trying to be a community of anti-racism. The only way that you can do that, though, and to really elicit change is to have the conversation. Understand empathy for the person that you're having the conversation with. But this is a difficult conversation for everyone to have. There's no easy conversation, but the fact that we can't have it, I think is the biggest downfall here. There is no willingness 
to understand what the other person in the conversation is saying, no ability to live in that person's shoes, or at least try to understand what it is to be in that person's shoes. That is the biggest troubling fact of this conversation for me. And something needs to change. The only way to change is to have that difficult conversation and then to, to start that change, to f- develop a plan, to use everybody and get everybody's input and understand what needs to happen for those steps to be taken. And then the last point to, I, to really get pointed on the actual question, because I got away from it a little bit, is do I feel that the NFL will see pushback? Yes. Because they saw when it got politicized before, they saw pushback. They saw people say they got turned off by the players not being for the armed services because the politics got involved and twisted the message, turned it in a negative, ugly viewpoint. So do I think it's going to be affected once this season starts and the the protests on the field and through the building start? Yes. And unlike the COVID-19, we are not seeing a unified support. Even today, we see Jerry Jones coming out saying they're still trying to figure out a way to um, to protest together. That's a compromise when Roger Goodell and other uh, owners are like, well, we're going to kneel. We're going to play the Black National Anthem. We're going to do this. In COVID, everybody's being tested under the same markers as Tom said earlier. So it was a unified approach. Here, if it's going to be team by team, you're going to see different approaches, which to me is not a unified front, which the NFL really should, instead of allowing teams to do it on their own, have a unified front. I also feel that should be the approach for fans, that it should be a unified front for fans. Because, you know, if you're in a New York area and there's no fans allowed, but then you go down to Miami and they got a stadium and they got fans going, um, I mean, you really have to, uh, to me, it's better if it's a unified approach in these ways, in these senses. Absolutely. So that's going to end our mailbag for this week. want to thank everybody who submitted questions. David, as we're getting out here, I want to do our ending, ending, ending remark, scouting tip, whatever it might be. Uh, I'll start here. Um, I just, you know, with, with that last question, man, like it's it's a heavy conversation. I'm glad that personally we could sit here and have that conversation, though. If anything that is going to get, uh, I, I hope, taken from me, openness to conversations, understand both sides, understand multiple perspectives. Like David said, unification, right? We need to be unified worlds. We need to push towards that right now. So if I could stress anything, understand what the person across from you is saying, Don't just hear them, actually listen to them. That is my end remark here. David Turner, your uh, scouting tip, life advice. I don't know what you want to call this, whatever you want to leave them with. Well, I I just want to thank Tom for coming on. Um, I mean, that conversation ran longer than we were expecting. It was awesome for him to donate so much time to us. Um, He definitely earned the T-shirt coming his way, the Schmedium. So... Uh, but, and, and also more so to me is, is the high level conversation that you help us bring every week, Ryan. Um, today, I think the, the, everybody who spends the 90 minutes or whatever this ends up being, uh, listening to our podcast today is really going to learn a lot from the, this conversation. And that's what we hope to bring every week, uh, from Mavs Sports Talk is a good learning environment for everybody to take away some high level uh, answers to questions that people in the mainstream media maybe aren't talking about or they're not getting those answers from them. 
I will say this to the to the audience: if you are, as Tom Palacero said earlier, if you are one of those agents that is looking to invest in a guy right now, if you are one of those parents that are looking to have their kids play in the spring, if you are one of those players that are looking to maybe play in the spring or play in a showcase, please contact Mav Sports Consulting. Please, this is why I created the company is to help you guys make these decisions. Understand. I am a former assistant general manager. I'm a former director of player personnel. I can help you understand what these men and women in these positions of power are thinking and help you make your decision. I'm not here to steer you towards anything but the best interests of yourself. And that's why I created the company so I could be on your side as you move through processes, which I thought were a lot more normal than this one when I started the company. But in these times, in these trying times, to help your son, help your daughter, even if they're trying to make decisions as a D1 athlete, do certain, make certain decisions for themselves. I'm here for everybody. And the company is Maverick Sports Consulting. You go to our online, maverickportsconsulting.com, look at all our services, ask questions, find me on social media. I'm here for you guys. Please take advantage of this offer because this is what we want to do for you. And you can find Maverick Sports Consulting at Mav underscore sports on Twitter. Please, everybody right now, take what you can get. It's a trying time. Take all the help that you possibly need uh, right now with everything that's going on. I also want to send a voice of thanks to Mr. Tom Pelissero, NFL Network. Uh, you know, it, it, it was awesome having him for the conversation for as long as we could have him. I want to thank my partner here, David Turner, again, for taking some time. 18-year scouting vet, uh, president, owner of Mav- Maverick Sports Consulting. Uh, every, every Friday, we have Friday Night Scout School, 9 Eastern Time. Make sure, again, at NFLDraftBible.com to sign up. Tomorrow, well, it, it would be today if you're listening to this on the podcast. Tonight, nine o'clock Eastern Time, Wednesday, we will be talking. Uh, we'll be having another uh, seminar with Brian Baldinger, Baldy's breakdowns, breaking down tight ends and fullbacks. So make sure to sign up there again, NFLDraftBible.com for all your latest needs. So from Ryan Roberts at Rise and Draft and David Turner at Mav underscore Sports, we thank you all so much, and we look forward to seeing you guys again next week. For listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B L E A V on YouTube. You know, when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.